Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin now. Our Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together once again and for this beautiful morning you've given us and for uh, the beauty of our Savior Jesus Christ uh, in whom we have uh, union and fellowship. As we come together to continue to consider uh, matters that pertain to marriage and particularly to Christian marriage, we commit this time to you and ask your blessing upon our study and our discussion and our opening of and examining your word to see what it says to us about such things. And Lord, we pray that in this and in every area of our lives, uh, we would uh, uh, seek more and more to bring our lives, our thought, our words, all of our practice into alignment with the principles of your holy word, which you've given to us. We pray all this uh, and also for your blessing upon the other Sunday school classes that are taking place even now. And we ask these things uh, confidently because as we ask them, we're praying in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so this morning uh, we come to another issue. Uh, I guess in a lot of senses, it might not seem like a very spiritual issue, but it's one that's very uh, crucial in marriage, and it's the issue of finances. Um, the, uh, the opening uh, remark up there at the top of your handout is, uh, for there to be a unity in marriage, a husband and wife have to be on the same page when it comes to something as important and as central as finances. And that statement is true whether a couple is Christian or not. You know, it doesn't matter uh, what their religious persuasion is or what their uh, philosophy of life is. If they're not united on this matter of marriage, then the marriage is going to be difficult. However, uh, in a Christian marriage, a husband and wife need to be in agreement about finances, but they need to be in agreement on the basis of a biblical Christ-honoring approach to finances. So not only do they need to be seeing eye to eye, uh, when it comes to matters of wealth and of money, they need to have a mutual perspective that's based on the Word of God. <clears throat> so for starters, let's remind ourselves, uh, we don't have to turn there, you, you know the passage quite well, you, you may turn there if you wish, but Genesis 2.24, we go back to that, that um, crucial uh, fundamental truth about marriage and that is that when a man and wife are joined in marriage they become one flesh and that speaks of the essential unity of the marriage relationship and in um, one of the, uh, the sources that I was using to prepare this week I found this statement is a very uh, uh, apt description of what marriage is and it's worth reflecting on and thinking about but it's it said that marriage is a total commitment and total sharing of your total person with another person until death. You know, in that respect, it differs from any other kind of relationship, whether it's an interpersonal relationship, whether it's a business relationship, no matter what you're talking about. Only marriage can really be said to be this, a total commitment and a total sharing of your total person with another person until death. And because marriage is that, Husband and wife have to be one flesh uh, in every respect, including their attitude toward money. There has to be a union there, a unity, a, 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 a oneness of mind regarding money and uh, how to use money. And when there's not, problems arise. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit there towards the end. 
So uh, I don't know what comes to your minds um, when the topic of finances in relation to marriage is brought up. As I look around the room, uh, I only see one person who's not married. Everyone else, having been married more than in, you know, say a week or so, um, you know, if you hear the word marriage and the word finances and, 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 and are kind of prompted to think about, well, what kind of conflicts could come up? Uh, I'm sure some immediately come to your minds because every single one of you married couples here um, or representatives thereof have had some kind of a disagreement about finances at some point and maybe still are even at this moment. So um, let's talk about a few of those. I, I gave a list just to, I, partially to, to, to give an idea of the range of issues that come up. But also, you know, uh, a professor of mine years ago made the comment, specificity breeds specificity. So if we really start to talk about specific issues about finances and marriage, it's going to bring up other specific things in your minds. That, and so I don't claim that this is an exhaustive list, but I hope it's a thought-provoking one. All right, so finance-related areas of potential conflict in marriage could include uh, savings versus spending. You know, if there is a little bit of extra uh, excess uh, uh, income or funding, you know, it's very likely and very common for spouses to disagree on whether we should put that away for a rainy day fund, put it away to save for something that we want but can't get yet, uh, or whether, you know, hey, we've got this money and I wanted this or I wanted that and so I want to spend it. All right? Okay. Um, so, whether to save or whether to spend. And when it comes to spending, uh, what to spend money on. When it comes to saving, what to save money for. Okay, that's number one, savings versus spending. Number two, when it comes to making decisions um, about employment, career decisions, in other words, vocational things, when you make those decisions, those decisions really have to be made mutually. They have to be made together as a husband and wife. And when you make the decision, on what basis are you going to make the decision? Are you going to make it um, based pretty much just on dollar sign kinds of um, factors? You know, how good is the salary? And does the job that offers the best salary, does that automatically win? Is that automatically the one you're going to take? Or maybe the one that has the best benefits package? And that's a big deal. I know it's a big deal. You know, when you're talking, one job has this great, great uh, uh, health insurance benefit. It's a, that's a huge deal. You know, or a company car, or, or you name it. Uh, the amount of vacation it offers. Um, so is it, is it going to be based on that primarily? Or, or the potential for career advancement? Yeah, okay, maybe this doesn't pay as much as I was hoping, but if I take this position, that could lead to some really great opportunities later. But see, those are all dollar sign kind of, uh, mostly dollar sign sorts of decisions. Or will you make employment decisions based on other things like... Um, the location, because there can be lots of different pros and cons to a certain place to live. You've got small children. Uh, do you want to raise them in a, in a large city that has high crime? Uh, things like that. And there's a lot of other aspects of location that go into it. What about family? Do you want to be close to family? And how important is that? Uh, I've got a friend who uh, 
Uh, he's been in the pastorate for many, many years. He's kind of nearing retirement. He's basically at retirement. And he and his wife decided to leave this place where they've been living many, many, many years to move to where uh, their sons are or close to where their sons are. So that was a family decision. Um, and even if, and of course, that that's also a retirement decision. So, but but I'm but I'm thinking in terms of let's say you're in mid career or early life, and uh, and you're weighing career options. How important is it that you be close to your parents or your relatives or or good friends? One of the you know, might interject our family, not just being close and so forth, but borrowing or lending to family finances can be a huge problem. Oh yes. Yeah, and, and very complex. And that's a great example of how specificity breeds specificity because, you know, you've you got a loved one who needs money. Are you going to loan them the money? Are you going to give them the money? What if you loan it and they might not pay you back or can't pay you back? What are you going to do? Yeah, Elizabeth? That's so a question. Um, finances are huge. I think um, that's an individual decision and, and it, you know the expectations in any scenario are going to vary so like if if it was understood uh, from from b beforehand that um, it would be expected that you kind of pay back in a sense uh, then then by all means do it uh, if uh, but if it, if it wasn't then you know in most cases you know parents give to their kids because they want to and they want to support them and and help them get a good start in life so uh, I guess if there are some very specific scenarios you want to talk about we can do that um, individually but um, but yeah loaning money and or family in need we've been in situations like that and many of you have as well uh big 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 one here is church you know and i and i've known a lot of people and i i've grown more and more to respect this uh this priority uh let's say a person has a job offer um that really, uh, it's it's very very attractive in almost every way. But you know in advance, you know uh, uh, going into it, that there's really not a, a very good church in the area where you're going to be having to go to take that job. What do you do? Is money the priority, or is having a good church community, a good church family, where you're going to be fed and where you can be uh, in fellowship with 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 a robust community of faith? Uh, and 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 the thing is, in a marriage, and it's not necessarily always the man that has the one attitude and the woman that has the other. But you know, there's there's going to be conflict in a marriage when one partner thinks that the that the priority needs to be that church family, but the other one thinks, how can you pass up a salary like that? See, um, uh, and then school. Uh, school for your kids and so forth and the list goes on um, so that's why I had the question mark at the end of that one a part of why anyway okay so 
savings versus spending, uh, how are you going to make employment decisions. Uh, number three, giving. Giving to the church. How much? Giving to some other nonprofit or charitable organization? Those, are, those can be difficult decisions. Uh, letter D, spending on recreation. So um, it's vacation time, and uh, you know, how much money are you going to lay out to go on a vacation? Are you going to go on the cheap and save money, or do you, you want to splurge and, and do something really nice? Uh, I'm not saying one or the other is inherently good or bad, sinful or, or, or upright, but um, those are decisions that can create real conflict. And then um, prioritizing big-ticket expenditures. Uh, we've got a uh, we need a new vehicle versus we need a new couch. Uh, you know, or we need renovations done on this or that part of the house. You know, and so these these big things that you can't just you know throw out huge chunks of money for for all kinds of major expenditures. How are you going to prioritize those? Those are just a couple of examples. What have, what have I missed, or what, what are some examples you can think of where a, 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 a husband and wife would have significant uh, conflict over something financially uh, related? Going back to the church uh, and, and job selection, whether or not a job would require you to work on something. That's huge. And I'm glad you bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I speak as one whose parents did save for my college education, uh, but I've known um, many people whose uh, who either as parents or whose parents uh, said, you know, I encourage you to go to college, but you're going to have to figure out how to pay for it. And I don't think there's a right or wrong there. I think it's a matter of financial planning on the part of a couple, financial decisions. Um, anything else? Yeah, I guess you're right. Uh, but, but you hit on, uh, I think, what is the fundamental issue. Is these are decisions that have to be made together. You know, if just one person can make the decision unilaterally, no conflict. But when two people have to agree on a decision, then you've got conflict, potentially. So, um, 
as I said at the beginning, a fi financial unity has to be built on mutual commitment to biblical philosophy of money. Now I'm speaking specifically to you all as Christian couples. I'm speaking specifically about Christian marriage. Uh, because again, you know, a non-Christian couple can reach an agreement on uh, a philosophy about money on some other basis. But if we're talking Christian marriage, and that's what this whole Sunday School course is about, Christian marriage, unity on the basis of finances has to be built on commitment to a biblical philosophy of money. And what I have here for you now is uh, at least the makings of the beginnings of a biblical philosophy of money. Not a comprehensive one, but uh, some, some very important starting points. And the first one is, remember that it's God who enables us to generate income. You know, we, get ten, we tend to develop a very um, self-centered, secularist perspective. We just lapse into it because we're fallen creatures and we think, you know, I'm able-bodied and I have a skill set, I have training, I can go out and earn money. But at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the bottom of the issue and at the end of the day, God is the one who enables us to generate income. We see that um, in Scripture. That God reminds us of it because He wants us to not depend on, us, on ourselves but upon Him. So if you look at Deuteronomy 8, um, the, the key verse for this passage um, is verse 18, and I want to read it, but then I want to read the context, because you've heard this verse before, I'm sure, and you've heard people kind of take it and, and formulate whole philosophies of, of, uh, of money based on the, that verse out of context, all right? Uh, verse 18 of Deuteronomy 8, you shall remember that the Lord your God, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. And a lot of times people just stop right there. You know, and so it's all about getting wealth. That's the goal, and God will enable you to do it. Read the whole verse, though. Or better yet, let's just start at the beginning of the passage that I put on the handout. Skip back with me to verse 11. And keep in mind, this is shortly before the people of Israel are going to go into the land that God had promised to their ancestors, and that they had been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting to enter. They're about to go in now, and in verse 11, God says, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible, the terrifying wilderness, with its fiery serpent, serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground, where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my might, the might of my hand, have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your you shall remember sorry you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Okay, so there in context, you see, God's the one who enables us to get wealth. Um, maybe some of you have already uh, 
run ahead to 1 Chronicles 29, but we're going to look there. 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12. And if there's someone who's already gotten that passage, please go ahead and read it for us. Okay. Thanks. It looks like this is uh, late in David's life. Yes. Before Solomon is anointed to follow him. Uh, yours, O Lord, this is David uh, praying before all the people. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Thank you. Okay, we could call that a doxology. That is a wonderful, rich passage of praise to God. And according to it, um, first of all, what belongs to God? Everything, right? Yours, all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Okay? And um, from where do riches and honor come for us? From God. Both riches and honor come from you. In your hand are power and might, and it is in your hand to make great and give strength. So, again, God is the one who enables us to generate income. I think it's very healthy for us to uh, refresh our memories about that on a regular basis. That really, uh, He gives us life and breath in everything. First uh, Corinthians four seven. Does someone have that? For he who sees anything different in you, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Thank you. Okay, so when you look at that passage and, and think about it, you know what, what do you have that you did not receive? Um, I think if we humble ourselves before God and before the Scriptures, we can, we can answer the question very easily. What do I have that I haven't received? Nothing. I've received everything. Now, if we don't humble ourselves before God, and if we're inclined to uh, kind of be self-reliant, we can say, well, wait just a minute. You know, I worked hard last week, and I got a paycheck. I earned that money, and I went and I used that money to buy my food and that's on my table now. Okay, that's a really humanistic way of looking at it, but there are people who think that way. In fact, the majority of the world probably thinks that way. Um, but who gave you the strength to do the work that you did? God did. Who gave, even gave you a healthy body so that you can work? Uh, you know, so, so you trace it all back, and it, it, it all comes from God. And when I think of that passage... Um, about God is the one who gives us life and breath and all things, it always makes me think back to when I was in the hospital a couple of years ago. You know, I had COVID, and I had to stay in the hospital a while because I could breathe, but my lungs weren't getting oxygen, or at least the oxygen wasn't getting to my blood. Something was wrong with me, and you know, I could try, 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 breathe harder and harder, but oxygen wasn't getting in there. My oxygen saturation just wasn't getting and staying up. Who gives me the ability even to just get oxygen in my blood? God does. And he can take it away. How did they cure you? Huh? Pardon? How, how did they cure? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I, mean, I was getting these injections daily. and uh, 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 the, the main reason I was in the hospital is I got pneumonia along with the COVID. And I think as I, as, as I healed of the pneumonia, then I was able to keep my oxygen saturation up. And there's this really fine uh, nurse working in the pulmonology department. I'm so thankful for her to this day because one, one, one evening she came in, she said, I'm going to lower your oxygen a little bit and see how you do. And she did. And I 
hung in there. And she, she kept doing that. She kept kind of weaning me off the oxygen. I think they're, if they'd taken a little bit more, uh, a little bit less aggressive approach, they could have just kept that oxygen up for a lot longer. I'm way off topic, but anyway, that's how I got better. Sorry. Um, the point being, um, you know, think of every system in your body. What causes it to work? Who causes it to work? And in whose power is it to just say, okay, I'm not going to sustain that system any longer? And then where are you? So remember, um, it is God who gives us even the very ability to generate income. And then, as we already saw in that passage from First Chronicles that, that Noah read for us and, and, um, and gave us the context very nicely as well, everything we have belongs to God ultimately anyway. Psalm 24, verse 1, what does that say? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Thank you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Or another way some English translations put it is, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Um, And then Psalm 50, verse 12. Does somebody have that? If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Isn't that a wonderful way of God expressing himself? You know, he doesn't need food. He doesn't hunger. But he says, if I were hungry... I don't need to come to you. <laughs> I own everything. Um, so uh, everything we have belongs to God, and it's on loan from Him, basically. All right. So uh, these are biblical philosophies of money. And then another thing, and we'll, we'll round out this section of the outline with with um, with this. Uh, Idea, this component of a biblical philosophy of money, and that is that um, money is important. You know, in the scriptures, if you if you read them very carefully, the scripture never downplays the importance of money. It never says, that, "Oh, you don't need that." You know, it never has this sort of pie in the sky uh, view about um, about wealth. I mean, we need. Uh, material things. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, the needs for our bodies, the things we need for this present life. But money isn't the most important thing. Money isn't the most valuable thing. So let's uh, just take a quick tour through this list. And I encourage you, some of you on letter C under Roman numeral 3, got a slew of scripture verses. If you want to just, just grab one somewhere on, along the list and, and be ready to read it. That'll expedite our time. But obviously the most valuable thing we have possession of would be our very souls. And we see how Jesus uh, impresses that truth upon us numerous times in his word. So Matthew sixteen twenty six says what? What will a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and the whole soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Right. Thank you. So imagine the most lavish, uh, the, the greatest job you can possibly uh, conceive of, and the, and the biggest salary. What would it profit you to get that job and to bring in that salary year after year after year if you lose your soul? Think about it. Um, Luke twelve fifteen. Um, it says, 
This is a warning from Jesus, and he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then later, just a little bit later in the same chapter, if you skip down to, uh, uh, well, actually, okay, this is where he introduces that parable about the rich fool. The guy was very wealthy. He'd found that job that has this great salary, and he was abounding. And he was like, he had so much, he didn't have room to put it in. And so he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones, he's going to store up grain, and then he's going to live the easy life. And then verse 20, God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And again, the scripture is not, um, not against wealth. It's not against having treasures, but it is very, very much against uh, valuing treasures, earthly treasures, over your own soul. Okay, so your soul is more valuable than money. The fear of the Lord is more valuable than money. Proverbs 15, verse 16. Okay, better, better is a little with what? With the fear of the Lord. Yeah. So in other words, it's better to have a a meager existence if you've got the fear of the Lord than to have great treasure. Um, And then the next chapter in Proverbs 16, verse 8. Okay, pride goes before destruction. Haughty, is that 16.8? I must have written down the wrong verse then. I'm sorry. There is a little with righteousness. Then great revenues with injustice. Which one is that? That's 16.8. Is that what you're asking? Yes, yes. Okay. So read it again. Uh, A little with righteousness, then great revenues with injustice. Okay. So in righteousness and fear of the Lord kind of going hand in hand, you see that it's better better to, you know, have have a, a, a meager living. You know, to, to be even even to be somewhat in want, and to have righteousness and the fear of the Lord, than to have wealth but without the fear of the Lord. And then uh, peace in the home. Proverbs speaks to that a lot, and this this kind of plays right into uh, the the whole theme of marriage. But Proverbs fifteen verse seventeen, please. Thank you. Okay, dinner of herbs. You know, just. Just a plate of vegetables, we might say. I think that there's even an English version that translates it that way. You know, a salad. You know, it's better to have just a, a, a small salad and quietness than a house full of feasting if there's strife in that same house, right? Okay. Um, so peace in the home is more valuable than money. Wisdom. Wisdom itself. Uh, Proverbs 3, verses 13 and 14. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. The gain from from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. Thank you. And of course, there, as in uh, numerous places in Proverbs, wisdom is sort of being personified. Wisdom is being personified as a woman. And this woman sometimes goes out to the street corners and proclaims to the, in the streets um, and shouts to people, get wisdom, get understanding. And so that's why you have the, the, the feminine pronouns there, her, and speaking about uh, the, the great value of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, does someone have that? instructions instead of silver knowledge rather than the choice of gold for wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her 
Okay, now let's keep in mind once again that these are not necessarily either-or propositions. Because, for instance, Solomon, when he was at his best, when he was kind of at the, the height of his, uh, his walk with the Lord as well as his uh, wealth, he had wisdom and he had riches. Uh, he had both in abundance. There was no one wiser than Solomon. And, um, and he was so wealthy, and the nation became so wealthy under his reign that it was just it was phenomenal. So he had both. But what the scriptures are saying is if you had to choose between the two, if you could step into Bill Gates' shoes and have his wealth, but then you knew that you'd be bereft of wisdom, and by extension, that means uh, you, you didn't know the Lord. Would you choose the money, or would you choose Christ? And the Proverbs say to us very clearly, this is much, much more valuable than all of that. The combined wealth of George Soros and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, put it all together, put it in a package, and somebody offers it to you. They say, uh, you can have this, or you can have Christ, you can have wisdom. Put that away and take the wisdom. Uh, God's word, God's, God's own word itself, uh, God's law, Psalm 19, 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Okay. More to be desired than gold. And then Psalm 119, which I happen to be reading through uh, at the moment in my, in my personal devotions. And I read this verse uh, yesterday, Psalm, seven, uh, Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better than thousands of gold and silver Thank you. Okay, so you, you probably know, first of all, that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's the, certainly the longest psalm. And the whole subject of Psalm 119 is God's Word. And how wonderful it is, the, the, the fullness of it, the riches of it. And that verse right there says uh, it's, it's, more, it's greater than, than uh, much wealth. Um, and to, to kind of bring it down to uh, character, I guess, uh, integrity. And a good reputation is more valuable than money. Proverbs 22.1 Thank you. And again, it's it's not saying that you can't have both, but it's saying uh, if there's a if there's any kind of contest involved, if it if it has to be one or the other, choose a good name rather than riches. And then uh, a couple chapters prior to that, chapter nineteen, verse one. Okay. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than the opposite. Uh, here's one, and this really then comes to the uh, uh, to the whole issue of marriage, because uh, you know, oftentimes uh, a married couple will decide for financial reasons not to have children. Uh, Psalm one twenty seven. Verse 3. Somebody read that for us, please. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, and a reward. Thank you. And then skip ahead and read the last verse. 
Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Okay, thank you. So, um, that's a decision couples make. And a lot of times, couples will decide they don't really want children. You know, children are a hassle. Uh, they take work. They cost a lot. Uh, you know, we'd be much better off financially, and we could take nicer vacations, and we'd have more freedom if we just not have children. And people make those decisions. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not a biblical decision. That's not a God-honoring decision. This says children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb are a reward. And the man whose quiver is full of them, the children are being likened to arrows in verse 4. I should have probably just had you read verse 4. Because he describes children as being like arrows in the hand of a warrior. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Uh, not the man who decides, I don't need any arrows. I just want to have a really, really nice house. Or I want to be able to go to, uh, uh, to Europe on vacation every year or something like that. All right. So, um, again, Scripture never dichotomize uh, these things. But when it comes down to decision making financially, just keep in mind that the value of all these things on this list and others this isn't an exhaustive list, but the value of these things have to be weighed as we make financial decisions. All right? Uh, so financial unity has to be based on a biblical philosophy of money, and I've tried to give sort of a beginning of that there. Uh, Roman numeral four, something to keep in mind as we, as in our marriage as we deal with financial issues, is remember covetousness is a sin. Covetousness is a sin. That's uh, what the Tenth Commandment is all about. And that's where the commandments kind of zero in and get missile lock on our hearts. Uh, sin, uh, the, the sin of covetousness includes discontentment, and it includes the worry that we so often have about material things, about what our, our bank accounts are doing, what our retirement accounts are doing, what, what, um, you know, what's going on financially and stuff. And we're supposed to keep track of those. The scripture says that too. We're supposed to keep a careful watch over our, our uh, households in that sense. But if we're worried about them excessively, that's probably an indication that we're, we're covetousness because we're anxious about them. Okay, So we're commanded not to covet. You know the Tenth Commandment. Um, and then Luke twelve 15, we've already seen and already read, but that's where Jesus says, it, and it's hard to imagine a, a way he could put the warning more strongly. But he says, be on the alert against all covetousness. Be on guard against it. And why does he tell us we have to be on guard against covetousness? Because it's easy. That's exactly right. And we're so inclined to it. And it's something that it's like you know, when Hillary and I were driving in today to church, we're going over the McTeer Bridge, and I don't know if I've never really noticed this before, but as there are seams in the large sections of the bridge, there's stuff growing in them. There's green things growing up in this concrete bridge. And I thought, isn't that interesting that stuff can grow there? But all it takes is, you know, a little bit of residual dirt coming off of vehicles, and you got some soil, right? And then seeds from weeds, you know, land in there, and they grow up, and they flourish on this concrete bridge. And covetousness flourishes in our hearts, too. It keeps growing up. Because there's soil in there for covetousness, and the seeds 
come in. You know, it doesn't, you know the seeds are already there. They're, they're, they're in our hearts. So we've got to be on guard against it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Steve? Yes. No, and maybe you've heard people use the word covet in what sounds like a, a, a favorable sense. How many of you, of you have had somebody say, hey, I covet your prayers? Yeah, we use that expression. And so covetousness in that sense isn't a, an inherently evil word. But no, to covet the Lord is, is a wonderful thing. That's what David is saying in the Psalms when he says, uh, one thing I've asked of you... Uh, uh, that I may dwell in your house all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire of his temple. He coveted that, and that's a good thing to covet. Yeah, good question. Was there a follow-up question? Okay. Um, uh, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Uh, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, of Christ and God. So be on, uh, on guard against covetousness. Uh, guard against it. Colossians 3.5 says much the same thing. We'll move on, um, just in the interest of time. But, uh, and then, in contrast to covetousness, contentment is a Christian virtue. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. And if somebody would like to, go ahead and read verses 6 through 8, please. But godliness with contentment is great. Is, excuse me, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can not take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Okay, and I think every single one of us has a whole lot more than mere food and clothing. But if, in God's providence, any one of us or all of us were reduced to that, it would be hard. But Scripture says we should be content. If you've got food and clothing for your body, be content. Um, we're down to five minutes, um, so I'm not going to attempt to finish all this today. Because as, uh, as we've discussed uh, in the past, you know, this is important material, so it's, it's more important, I think, than we, that we get through it and really deal, are able to deal with it than that we finish on a, on a schedule. Uh, so let me... In, in view of that, let's go back and look at the passage from, uh, well, okay, go to Hebrews 13. Alex preached on this very verse uh, only a week or two ago. Hebrews 13, verse uh, 5. Would somebody read that for us, please? Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Thank you. Okay, so contentment there is commanded once again. Um, and that's you know in direct contrast with uh, covetousness, they're opposites. And then since uh, 
Yeah, Colossians 3, 5, we, we won't turn there, but uh, that is another verse about, you know, just a warning and a caution against covetousness. And then finally, letter C under Roman numeral 4, uh, Christ preached against being anxious uh, and against um, well, being, being anxious about our material needs. That's, uh, you know, you, you know the words, uh, be anxious for nothing. Um, but as Christ addresses the, 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 the broader problem of anxiety here in chapter 6 of Matthew, um, he's speaking particularly about the um, bodily needs. So he says, first of all, in verse 25 of Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And as I read those verses to you, and as you read them maybe later again today, I want you to hear them uh, as if there's a scolding finger being shaken at you. I want you to hear them as if your loving Savior is coming alongside you and saying, don't be anxious about your life. Um, and verse 31 of the same chapter Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And then verse 34 at the end, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I want to close with a quick story about my uncle. My, my mom's younger brother, she had two brothers. They were both older than her, but the younger one was a, uh, he was a Marine infantry lieutenant. Marine infantry lieutenant needed a combat tour in Vietnam. Came back alive. And I remember visiting my grandmother, and I was sitting in grandmother's kitchen, and across the table from me was my uncle, and I was talking about something I wanted, and I said, uh, I said, I need this. I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was a Trans Am or something. I don't know. I, something I just really felt I had to have, and I said, I need it. They, they were good cars, weren't they? Um, and, uh, and my uncle, you know, combat tour in Vietnam, uh, seen a lot of stuff. He just looked across me, the table at me and he said, you only need three things. He said, you need food, you need clothing, and you need shelter. And that has stuck with me when I think about needs. <laughs> but, um, but isn't it wonderful that God gives us so far beyond just what we need and we have so many good things. Uh, let's be content with them, and, uh, and, and let's kind of have that attitude of contentment as we relate to another, one another as husbands and wives. You know, and someday, Lord willing, you get married, talk about these things with the guy you're thinking about marrying, and settle those beforehand, you save yourself a lot of heartache. Uh, any closing remarks? We'll, we'll finish this one up uh, next week, but uh, anything else anybody wants to interject or a question or anything? Okay, let's, let's close. Our Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, we need certain things for the body, and you've been so faithful to provide those things. And you've also been so gracious and kind to give us much, much more than we need. Lord, let us be thankful people. Let us be content people. Let us be on guard against covetousness. And we pray that our marriages uh, would be more and more uh, united around the, uh, this uh, biblical philosophy of finances and wealth. We'd be of one mind in our homes about the use of our funds and uh, how uh, to uh, get wealth and what to do with it when you give it to us. 
And Lord, now, uh, as we look forward to going to the other room and joining with our brothers and sisters in worship, we pray you'd make us ready to give great praise and honor and glory to King Jesus and that he'd be lifted up among us. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.